Well, please turn with me now in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And today, let's talk about knowledge and love. So here I am preaching a message. The message has now started, and you may have the question. In fact, I want you to ask the question today, why another sermon? Why do we even do sermons? And, and why do we have all of our small groups? Right now, I'm preaching the Word of God to you, and all around this building at the 9.30 hour, now the 11 o'clock hour, dozens of life groups have been meeting. Children's classes and students are meeting right now. A lot of Bible being taught, and it doesn't end today. We'll have things going on tonight here with Bible teaching for a life group, and then Wednesday night, three different life groups, plus children's ministries, student ministries. Again, the question, why all this intake of God's divinely inspired word? Well, here's the answer. First, our prayer is in all of this proclamation of God's word, there will be those who will hear the good news and today respond to that good news, to become children of God. That's why we do it. But also, what about the believers? Somebody might say, well, I'm already a Christian. Why do I hear sermon after sermon, Bible study after Bible study? Well, here's the reason. To know God better and better. To grow in our faith in Him. To grow to love Him more. To grow to love more like Him. In other words, to become more Christ-like. This is why we want more and more knowledge of God. We want to be sanctified. I love what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.5. He says, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So today for us in 1 Corinthians 8, it's a good day for us to remember again why all of this learning. Why do I want this knowledge? Now, the Corinthians needed this reminder as well. They had learned a lot so far in their Christian walk. But instead of making them more like Jesus, all of their learning had made at least many of them more prideful, more self-centered. And may that never happen to us. And Paul here in chapter 8 is going to address another one of the Corinthian questions. Remember, when we crossed into chapter 7, Paul said, I'm now going to talk about things that you wrote about. And so chapter 7 was all about some of their questions. Well, that continues here in chapter 8. And here's the question they had. Hey, Paul, what should we do about eating meat, meat that had come from an animal that had been given in sacrifice to idols? That was the question. Can we as Christians eat meat that came from an animal that was given as a sacrifice to pagan idols? Well, the answer is going to come here in chapter 18. We're going to read all 13 verses here. Follow along with me. 1 Corinthians 8, 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are not worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. 
but take care that this right of yours does not somehow cause a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So their question, can believers eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols? And Paul gives the answer right here. And I bet like me, you first read that and go, I don't know that I know the answer. <laughs> I heard that, but can I or can I not? So I also know this. This is another one of those questions you didn't come in with today. You weren't driving and thinking, I wonder if we're going to talk about meat sacrificed to idols and can I eat it? Because I know in our lives in America, this isn't something that we typically come upon. Now, it can happen because there are people of other major world religions living around here. So you could be in their home as a guest and they might serve you something. And you, you might think, I think that might have been offered to another deity here. So it can happen here. But for me, it happened for the first time when I lived in Central Asia years ago, when Joy and I were there. And I remember one day I took one of our new colleagues out to this Islamic shrine on the outside of the city where we lived. And so we were kind of prayer walking that area. It was a big area, big complex, multiple acres large. And we're walking around praying. And, and there weren't many people that, there, that day, as I recall. But I do remember this. Upon arrival there with my new colleague, we're walking around and uh, I see an animal with a rope around its neck and men leading it somewhere. And then it dawned on me, oh yeah, uh, Muslims do animal sacrifice. That's probably an animal being led to the slaughter. And I remember watching that animal wanted nothing to do with it. He was pulling against it, making noise. And, and I remember having that reflection at that moment. That's nothing like our savior. Jesus, as we just celebrated at the Lord's table, Jesus willingly went to the cross for us. He willingly laid down his life for us in this needless animal sacrifice. This animal wants no part of it. So I had that spiritual thought. We just continued. We left that behind us and just walked around, just praying, just seeing what this was all about. It's about an hour or so later. We're there we're, we've kind of been through everything and now we're coming uh, to leave. And uh, these very friendly men invite us to come join them for a meal come over, eat with us. And, and that was not unusual. The people there, very hospitable, very friendly and come eat with us. And so, okay, you know, we're there to share good news if we can. And so we sit down and the food begins to be served. And then it dawns on me, wait a second. This might, this might be the meat from that sacrifice that was just made. I wasn't sure, but, but in my mind, can I eat this? And I'm trying to, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm trying to remember what the scripture says about meat sacrifice to to idols. And I know it's not an idol, but it's to another religion. I thought, can I, can I eat this? And so I'm rolling through Acts talks about this Psalm. And then I thought about first Corinthians and I thought, I think I can do this. Okay. Yes, I, I can do this. I can, I can eat this. And so even right now, let me pause there. I, I bet you're wondering, I don't know if you can eat this. All right. I, I listen, I can tell you, I, I was in bed at night that very night going, should I have eaten that? And even through the years since, I'm wondering. But I think in light of this and what we're going to see in chapter 10, it was correct to eat it. But I'm just making the point, that was kind of a one-off. I didn't face that a lot. Uh, in South Asia, when we lived there, there, was, there were occasions where you're wondering, wait a minute, this, these treats that have been given to me at the door, were these first offered to one of the gods before offered to me? And can I, and do I want to eat this? My point is, it's kind of rare for us in our context here, 
But it was an everyday question for those in Corinth. Let me give you two words from two different scholars that helps you maybe get into the mindset of these Corinthian brothers and sisters. One scholar said it this way, meat was unavailable to most Corinthians who were not well-to-do except at the pagan festivals when it was doled out to the masses. Many of the socially powerless, the weak, thus inevitably associated meat with idolatry. Another scholar said this, the best place to buy a good roast or a good steak in Corinth was right next to the idol temple. In these pagan temples, they did like the Jews did in the Old Testament days. They offered living animals as sacrifice. And like the Jews, they reserved some of the meat for the benefit of the priests and also for public sale so that the best meat markets in Corinth were right next door to the idol temple. Everyone in town knew that if you ate some of that meat, you were eating meat that had been offered to an idol. Therefore, the question arose among the Christians, if a Christian eats meat offered to an idol, is he not participating in some way in the worship of that idol? So what a dilemma for the Christians in Corinth. And the believers in the church in Corinth had different feelings about this practice. Now, Paul here affirms that the accurate knowledge of one group in the church at Corinth, that group that said, listen, an idol is not real. An idol is just a carving of wood. It's just a carving of stone. There's nothing behind that. It's not real. Paul affirmed that's correct. Paul also affirmed this, that meat is just meat. The animal meat is, is not good or bad. It's just meat. And so to eat that meat is not, in most cases, to participate in idol worship. So Paul affirmed that they have the correct knowledge. But there were some there that Paul calls weak. Now, he's not insulting them to call them weak. I think it's helpful for us if we think of them as maybe, some of them maybe being younger in the faith. All of them are pretty young Christians uh, in Corinth, four or five years in Christ, as all any of them would have had at this time. But there were some that, that because of their background, as we're going to talk about, that had trouble with that idea. So verse four again, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and there is no God but one. That is the correct understanding. Paul affirmed that. However, Paul was not unconcerned about those who were troubled. He talks about this in verse 7. So what about those who came from a pagan background? So in Corinth, if you're a Christian, you came from a Jewish background to Christ, or you came from a pagan background to Christ. And if you were pagan, a lot of idolatry was a part of that. Likely a lot of immorality involved with that. And so eating meat, sacrificed idols was a part of your life. And so think about this. For some of them who came out of that pagan background in particular, the thought of eating that meat, maybe even adjacent to the temple, like, I just can't do that. That just feels like my old life. I don't want anything to do with that, that old life of mine. And so the knowledge was correct on one hand, but Paul had great compassion for these people. So here's the problem Paul had in his mind, the problem he's addressing here is the, the heart of some saying, listen, an idol's nothing, it's just meat, get over your hang-ups and let's go eat together. Don't worry about it, you're, you're overthinking it. Because Paul said the concern is that some of those who he calls weak here, they might be led to go against their conscience. Like, I know this is deep down, I know it's wrong, but I've got these people telling me it's okay, I'll, I'll go with them and I'll eat, but I, I feel terrible. Paul says you're, you're destroying that other brother in Christ by leading them to do that. And so here, as we talk about knowledge, knowledge can be good, but let's talk about several things here. First of all, first point is this, knowledge handle with care. 
If you have knowledge, an exhortation for us here is handle with care. That's verses one through three here. But notice with me in particular this statement, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Paul is essentially saying knowledge can lead you to arrogance where true love leads to edification. In other words, knowledge without love can do great harm. Have you ever known somebody who had knowledge and it puffed them up? I can tell you your, your answer is yes. Remember it was that girl in elementary school. Remember her? She, uh, she knew a lot. And whenever she got a paperback, she would hand, hold it up. I got, a, I got an A plus on this. I got a hundred. What'd you get? She's real proud of herself. So you remember her, right? You had her in your school. I had her in my school. And, uh, but how about where you work? There might be somebody still like that. They've got a, no, a lot of knowledge, but it's made them arrogant. Might be a person where you work. He believes he's the smartest man in the room, whatever room he's in. Thinks he's the smartest man in the company. And then you got to give it to him. The guy is very smart. He's very intelligent. But he thinks he's better than everybody else. Knowledge can puff a person up. Now, sadly, it's not just elementary school. It's not just where you work. It can happen in spiritual circles as well. A person can get a lot of knowledge and they begin to be puffed up. I think back to my early days as a Christian in high school. I was learning rapidly, reading the word daily and all that. I was learning a lot. I don't think I became arrogant, but I do believe I overestimated how much I knew in high school and early college. I mean, I really thought there's probably not much more to learn. I mean, I kind of have, I pretty much have a handle on it all. I, I mean, I, did, I had no idea how much I still didn't know. And then I went to seminary and seminary was wonderful. And you, you might think, well, that's where he really became arrogant because he learned a lot. No, you learn a lot fast there, but it's very humbling because then you're realizing, oh, I had no idea all that was out there to know and I didn't have it. So, so really it can humble you. I'm learning a lot, but I'm realizing even as I exit seminary, there's still a lot to know. There's still a lot to learn here. Now, through the years, I've encountered a lot of people, obviously, and some of them who have a little bit of knowledge and that little bit of knowledge, they don't know what's a little and they become proud. I'm thinking in particular about a day here where we had a contractor working here. And I don't remember what his trade was. Sometimes people come in here to fix something, paint something, something like that. And there's one of these gentlemen, of course, it's always great when we can have a conversation with somebody there. We want to have a spiritual conversation. Here they are on God's turf. Uh, what a great opportunity. But I remember this particular guy, he had a, a, a little bit of knowledge that he thought was total knowledge. And he wanted to talk to me about it. He found out I was the pastor and he just wanted to unleash all he knew. And, uh, and some of his knowledge was incomplete and I saw that. And so I wanted to gently kind of help out. And so I would want to engage in the conversation, let him know a little something. Let me complete this thought here. But he, he wanted nothing of it. Whenever I'd start talking, he'd say, yeah, yeah, he'd take over. And he was here for multiple days. And it was like, there's just no getting through this guy. He thinks he's got it all figured out. And there were gaps in his life. Hadn't, hadn't connected to a local church. He's kind of floating out there as just a Lone Ranger Christian with a lot of political views he wanted to talk about and spiritual things he would throw in there. It was not healthy. Knowledge had puffed him up. And here we have the Corinthians. They have some knowledge, wonderful, but it wasn't making them healthy. Paul's calling them to humility. He's calling them to love others with that knowledge. By the way, do you know, over and over again, the Bible warns us against arrogance. It's this basic Christianity that we should flee from arrogance. Here are a couple of an example, a couple of examples, James 4, 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, 
and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be torn, turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Listen, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Or 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6 says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. So this text here is reminding us of this truth. You can be both right and wrong at the same time. You can have the right information, but if you don't apply it with love, you can actually be sinning. That's what he talks about in verse 12. You've got right knowledge, but you're implementing it without any grace toward anybody else, and you're sinning against your brother, and therefore you're sinning against Christ, though they might have been right. And so we would say here, then knowledge is good, but I have to use care with it here. Now, somebody might say, I know what I'll do. I'm just going to avoid knowledge altogether. I'm just going to be an ignorant Christian. Nobody would really say that, but somebody might say, listen, if I have to handle knowledge with such care so as not to be ignorant, maybe I won't aspire to learn anything, but that would be arrogance of another kind, wouldn't it? So if anybody here would say, look, I don't want to, I don't want to hear sermons. This This one right here will do me for the next six months. And I don't need to be in a life group and study the Bible more. And I certainly don't need to be reading the Bible on my own. I think I got it. Arrogance. I don't, I don't need more. That would be arrogance. I got enough wisdom. Jesus saved my soul. I'll see him again in heaven. I can manage the day-to-day affairs of my life on my own, by my own wit, by my own wisdom. That is arrogance of another kind. The scriptures call us to humility. And there really is no danger if you drink deeply from the word of God in sermons, in life groups, certainly in your own personal time. The word of God is going to keep you humble as you take it in over time. For instance, when you meet with God in the word, you're confronted every day with the magnitude of his greatness and how small you are. Isn't that true? It keeps you humble. When you relive the gospel, like we did at the Lord's table, we're reminded he is amazing in his love. And here I am a sinner. So we're humbled and exhilarated all at the same time when we think about what Jesus has done for us who were sinners. In his presence, we're reminded that we're weak, but we were designed to live on the strength that he makes available. We're aware as we walk with him and in the truth of scripture that his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So we stay in this humble condition. So knowledge, handle it with care. Secondly, knowledge, handle it with confidence. Handle it with confidence. Look at verses four through six again. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So humility does not mean that you don't have any confidence in God. You can be humble, but confident in what you know from God. And Paul lists some of the things that are true. You and I should find confidence here. So verse four, that idols are nothing. There's no substance behind them. There's no real existence. Verse four, that that affirmation, there's only one God. We have here verse 6, that there's one God, the Father, there's one Lord, Jesus Christ. We can humbly be confident in those truths. And notice how both the Father and the Son are called our creator and our sustainer. I love it. We're told that we exist through Him. 
the deity of Christ affirmed right here in our passage. So let me ask you, are you confident in that knowledge? If you're confident in this knowledge, it'll change your life. You, you should be confident in this. Do you have confidence today of this truth, that God made you? You know that? That'll change your life if you know that, that you're not here randomly, that you were created. You were created by God. Listen, this will change your life. And I was created for God. That'll change your life. And there is one Lord, there's one Savior, that Jesus came to rescue me, and all my faith is in Him. That will change your life. You should be confident in those statements of truth, and you should respond to it. I'm reminded of a, a man in India years ago. I had some friends that lived in a certain city of India. And one of the things they did living there in order to share good news in that context was they wanted to get the same taxi driver every day when they needed to ride somewhere. As many times as possible, they wanted this particular man so that they could build a relationship as they went from place to place. And so I remember them talking about this man. They said that after some time of talking of Jesus just regularly in this man's life, this guy was so impressed with Jesus that he told them, listen, I've ordered an idol of Jesus for my dashboard here to go next to my Hindu idols here. So he's, he's impressed with Jesus. I'm going to order an idol of him. Well, these two friends of mine said, hey, you don't, you don't want to do that. God speaks a lot in his word about how he's against idolatry. So don't do that. Please don't do that. And this man said, well, that's good to know. And so I'll cancel the order. Well, I learned about this because they sent an email back to the U.S. They said, would you pray for us? Because we've set up a meeting at his home so that now, not just little conversations about Jesus, we want to explain the gospel to him in its fullness. Well, then they reported how that went. They did have that appointed time to go to his house. They said he believed almost immediately in Christ. He had already been so interested in Christ from the things he had heard. He was ready to put his full faith in Jesus Christ. And they said, then he did this. He offered this. They didn't bring it up. He said, I'm going to get rid of all my idols. I guess based on what he'd already heard in this taxi that day, that God doesn't like him. He said, I'm going to get rid of the idols. And I'll never forget what he said to them next. He said, they never did anything for me anyway. So here's this man. He had come to knowledge that there's a God who made him. I don't have to worship a God that's been made by man. I now know the God who made me. I now know the Savior that he sent to cleanse me of all my sins. That knowledge changed his life. In fact, I heard from them a little bit more about his life. In fact, he had such boldness to act on that knowledge of, of the gospel. He got rid of his idols and that didn't sit well with his family. And so he did experience some persecution there in his context. But there he was, life changed through the gospel. So yes, listen, handle knowledge with care. Don't get arrogant. But handle it with confidence. Act on what you know. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. And then this, knowledge, apply with compassion. Apply your knowledge with compassion. Back to verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Verse 9, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. That's a key verse. Make sure that this knowledge of yours doesn't hurt somebody else in the church. He, he says here, if you go down further in verse 11, he says, this brother can be destroyed by you if you implement the knowledge you have without appropriate compassion here. You're sinning against this brother if you don't handle your knowledge well. You're sinning against Christ. Don't cause him to stumble. Did you notice what Paul said in verse 13? Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So this is Paul's real point here. 
that with your good knowledge, apply it with the Christian community in view. Consider others in the body of Christ as you make your decisions based on your knowledge. But most importantly here, be careful not to be a stumbling block to the weak. I read this week this, that Jewish teachers considered causing someone to stumble from the way of God worse than killing that person. Because to lead somebody away from the way of God is to lead to eternal loss, whereas just killing them, as horrible as that is, is just a physical killing. And so it would be very serious for us to cause a stump, be a stumbling block in somebody's spiritual life, turning them away from God. So the, the Corinthian knowledge, Paul affirms, is good, but your application of the knowledge is faulty. There's a breakdown here because they're not applying their knowledge with love. Again, the idea is this. Idols are nothing. Meat is just meat. Get over yourself and just come eat it with us. Stop making a ruckus about it. And they were hurting other people around them. Again, in particular, those who were coming out of that pagan lifestyle. They were being emboldened to go back into maybe some old patterns, maybe get enslaved in some of their old sins, maybe creating some new doubts in them. So Paul is teaching that the entire orientation of a Christian is this. The more you know about him, let that direct you to the Lord. And may it make you love the people around you even more. Paul's making the point that we have a responsibility to one another in the body of Christ, that you were born again into a family of believers and you must care about them. Paul's making the point that it's sinful only to consider your own opinions with no regard for other people around you. Paul's making the point that you can do great damage to the health of another believer. You can do great damage to the unity of a church by insisting on your own preferences rather than considering other people. So Paul makes the point, others matter. It's not just about you alone. Again, in verse 13, therefore, he says of himself, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So let me ask you this. Are there areas of your life where you need to be more thoughtful of younger believer? Another question. Are you making decisions that could negatively impact a younger believer in your life? So he's, he calls them weaker brothers. There's a sense in which we could maybe help for us to think in terms of a younger brother, not as mature in the faith. Are there things you're doing or choices you're making that could be detrimental to them? Now, we're not talking about worried about legalistic, opinionated Christians. So maybe you've met some of those who, who have a whole set of extra biblical rules that they want all of us to knuckle under to. And, and that's not what Paul's talking about. When Paul deal with people like that, Judaizers, he would refute their false teaching. But here he's worried about those who are weaker in the faith, who could be falling away by a bad example of Christians with knowledge. Now he says, I want to care for them, but, but not the strict, rigid Christians that you might know in your circles. In fact, I, I've known a number of these people through the years. I remember Joy and I uh, used to know a group of Christians. I won't name them, but a group of Christians. And they, they had certain things like this that they wanted everybody to surrender to. They believed that the only good Bible was the King James Version. And if you use any other translation, they thought it was of the devil and all that. Does this mean, well, there's some really cranky Christians out there who only like the KJV, so we all should just give up our Bibles because we don't want to make those gr grumpy people unhappy. No, Paul's not talking about them. That's a weaker brother of a different kind. But that same group that I'm thinking of that Joy and I used to have to deal with in another state at another time, they had rules against facial hair. The guy said one time, I've never met a spirit-filled man with a beard. And I uh, thought, what's that? 
What's that about? That's extra, that's extra biblical. Are we all supposed to shave our faces because there are some cranky Christians who have rules about facial hair? They also had the same group of people had rules about what women can wear. And in their mind, only, the only suitable clothing for a lady is a dress, always, anywhere. Could never wear slacks, could never wear jeans, and oh my goodness, could never wear shorts of any length. You can't do that or you'd be sinning. And then this one, same group of people, you can't have music with a beat. If the music has a beat, you are sinning. Again, do we have to try to do everything that they want? No, that's a different issue here. We're talking about people that there's, if there's something we're doing that could lead a, a younger one in the faith into trouble, they could maybe backslide because of our example. That's what we have in mind here. We don't want people sliding back into old habits, going into old bondage, setting a bad example of what faithfulness looks like. In fact, Jesus spoke very strongly about us not being stumbling blocks to these. Here's Jesus talking in Matthew 18, verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Listen, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin or to stumble, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. So we're going to handle our knowledge with care, with confidence, but oh, certainly this passage would teach us with compassion. So application for us here is whenever we face maybe one of those, we could call it a gray area of life, like the Bible doesn't explicitly tell us what do you have to do in every case here. And yet we, we have to realize this is important. How do I handle this? There are some questions we could ask would help us as we make decisions about what to do, what not to do. So one question we can ask is we're thinking about, do I, do I practice this thing? Is this question, does it glorify God? If I make this decision in one of these gray areas, would my doing this thing bring glory to God? A second question, could doing this thing cause a brother or sister to stumble? Another way we could ask it, could my example lead another believer into harm? Like, I feel like I've got the freedom to do this, but if others do what I'm doing, could this bring harm to them? Another question, could I do this with a heart of love for my brothers and sisters in Christ? Will this edify them if I make this choice? Will it edify me? Will it draw me closer to the Lord? So in your growing knowledge of God and his word, be sure that your goal is to know, know Christ more, love him more, trust him more. In all of your learning of God's word through sermons and personal study and all that, make sure that it causes you to love others around you like Christ. May you see in your life, Lord, it's my goal. I want to, I want to know you more that I might look like you more and act like you more. I want the fruit of the spirit in me. Well, I want to close back at verse three, because it's a beautiful verse right here in the middle of all this. He says, but if anyone loves God, he's known by God. Do you know today that you can love God? We've talked already about how he first loved you. You were helpless. You were a sinner. You were an enemy, but you can love God in return. You can become one of his. You can be known by God. You say, how would I express love for God? Here's the chief way you do that. When you've heard this good news of what Jesus has done for you and he was raised from the dead, then your move is to, to look to him and put all of your faith in him. You're acknowledging, I've been living my life going the wrong direction, trusting in the wrong things, chasing the wrong things, but no longer, this is what the Bible means by repentance. I have a change of mind about Jesus. And now I see that I need him. I see what he did on the cross. He atoned for my sins and he was raised from the dead. And now I must put all my faith in him. Jesus said, if you believe in him, you won't perish, 
but you'll have everlasting life. And so today's the day where you say, I'm going to act on that knowledge of what Jesus did for me, that I might love God by trusting in him and growing to love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so right now, I want to give you a moment to ask Jesus to be your savior. Maybe right now, let's bow our heads and I want to give you a moment to think about where you stand with Christ. Many of you in the room, many of you watching our live stream, you already know Jesus. But for a moment, for the person who, maybe this is new information today, what Jesus did for you, would you right now ask Jesus to be your savior? Would you acknowledge your sin? Would you acknowledge that you need what Jesus did for you? And you can ask him, you could say something like this, Jesus, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. I acknowledge I've been on the wrong track, running in the wrong direction. I know you call that sin and I am sorry. And Jesus, would you forgive me? I know you died for me. I know you were raised from the dead. Would you forgive me? And thank you for forgiving me. Now I just want to follow you. You take over. You lead me in this new way, following after you as Savior. Now let me pray for you. Lord, I pray for those who have asked you even now to be their Savior, to be their Lord. Would you help them now to grow in you and grow in their knowledge of you? God, lead them in, in your ways from, from this day until you call them home. And then, Lord, for the rest of us who have known you for quite some time, Lord, thank you for this reminder to steer clear of arrogance. Lord, keep us humble. Keep us loving you. Help us to love others. And Lord, as we face decisions in life, what to do, what not to do, Lord, we want to walk according to your wisdom to glorify you and to bless others. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.